from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, addressing the material risk of climate change in your company, inside the movement to rev up EVs in California, 10 takeaways from Circularity 19, and Sidewalk Labs proposes Mobility Nirvana. We're transcending traffic this week on 350. It's June 28th, 2019. Wow, the year is half over. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she does each week from her home base in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings and salutations. Yeah, well, both of those back to you. Um, <laughs> it's been an interesting week, as it always is, after one of our events. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been uh, enjoying uh, or experiencing uh, and enjoying the sort of happy hangover from that uh, amazing <laughs> event last week, Circularity 19. How about you? Well, I, I kind of have. However, I also have just jumped right into several other things right away. I'm already planning for Verge. Oh, yeah. I have uh, a number of sessions I'm already deep into uh, thinking about and starting to recruit for. So it was one of those I paused as I was stuck in Minneapolis I got stuck in Minneapolis at the end of the conference um, last week, and I had the opportunity to, to go to the Mall of America. Oh, nice. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. And I, it's it's and definitely I, an American icon. You have to see it. Well, I actually kind of avoided the Ferris wheel and just went right for the movie theater where I saw Toy Story 4. So that was my, my little respite. Um, I also was channeling the energy, right, from last week. Yep. <laughs> it just was amazing, and I, I came out of there on a – on it. Yeah, I guess it's appropriate to say hangover. Just so excited, and the conversations were so inspiring and energizing. And I came out with all sorts of great story ideas. So I'm. Um, this week has been wonderful for thinking and and taking stock. And just to be really clear to our many many friends in the Twin Cities in the Gopher State, being stuck in Minneapolis is only a problem if you've uh, had a very long and intense week and really want to get home. It's a wonderful place to be, and it's your home state too, right, Heather? It is the city of my birth. Wow. So yes, I wasn't too upset. I was just upset because I wanted to get home. But yeah. but it was it was a, a, a nice little uh, uh, overnight. Uh, and like I said, I got to see Toy Story four. So yay, Woody. Um, yeah, I mean, people always ask. Uh, well, I hope you're getting a, a much deserved break after that amazing event last week. To which I usually say, Yeah, that was called Friday. Um, because this is uh, life at Green Biz. It's kind of a hamster wheel where we're always working on our next three events. And and Monday morning this week, we got right into it around Verge 19, Green Biz 20, even a little bit of talk about Circularity 20 uh, next year in Atlanta. So uh, we just keep moving along. But um, yeah, and it was, it was a great week. And you have uh, picked... I think four clips uh, from the main stage that we didn't get a chance to play last week that we're going to scatter throughout this program. In fact, let's hear one right now. All right. So first up, we're going to hear from Erica Karp. She is the founder of investment advisory firm Cornerstone Capital, and she is talking about how public companies should be putting catalytic capital to work. 
I think you'll agree that she has some pretty strong opinions on why more big organizations need to jump in instead of just dabbling. So here is Erica. I just want to give a moment about the scale of the problem we've got, all right? To give you context when it comes to um, alternative energies. Last year, about $500 billion went to investing in alternative energies, right? We need about a trillion and a half to get anywhere near um, the Paris Agreement, all right, a year. So we have a huge deficit, and, and that's the issue. Um, that's just energy, so think about everything else, food and waste and everything else. So trillions and trillions is what we need to move, all right? You can't move that much money with just one asset class, all right? You have to use every asset class, in particular, equity and debt, public equity and debt. So when we look at a single company, and some people would argue that you can't do impact investing um, with public companies, we entirely disagree. Not only can you, you have to, you know? So why would you not stay um, at MGM, as an example, rather than someplace else? Every dollar you move matters. So you wanna see not just the best public companies, you wanna see them raise the bar for everybody. And solutions come from everywhere. And we talk about systems, all right? So the systems um, in, that we have incorporate the beliefs that we have. Systems are hard to change. So you have to decide, okay, am I gonna blow it up or am I gonna try really, really hard to change it? Given where we are in the global economy, I think we have to try really, really hard to change it. All right. So when it comes to investing in public companies, sometimes it's best in class. Sometimes it's looking at companies like, like Unilever that have uh, kind of skunk works, different things that they do, whether it's with Ben and Jerry's or Grayston Bakery. Um, but you have to look at the public companies to move the trillions that we need to move. The issue we have in sustainable and impact investing is that it's become like a thing and so what we're seeing is an, you know, a huge um, kind of uptick in products, in investment vehicles, in public equities. And a lot of them, frankly, are frankly marketing. So you have to be able to delineate between the ones that are really getting done something and, um, and the ones that are using it for marketing. That's partly what we do. We've diligence hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of asset managers. So it's a big ask. Uh, that we have of every single investor to invest in best-in-class in public equities companies that understand catalytic capital. Great. Well, uh, three more of those to come on the rest of this uh, episode, and uh, we'll scatter those around. Um, but before we move on, uh, one other thing that we launched this week, no rest for the weary, uh, Verge Vanguard Awards for 2019. Yeah. So we created this uh, list, if you will, this this feature last year, and it is meant to honor the dreamers and the pioneers and the entrepreneurs and designers and engineers and and so forth that have have really made a contribution to the um, the cutting edge of technology for four, our four different verge disciplines, if you will. So our idea is that we're going to recognize individuals who are uh, you know inspiring the inclusive transition to a clean power grid or laying the groundwork for and the roadmap for a zero emissions transportation system, um, circular pioneers, circular economy pioneers, and, that, and also, and this is a bit different from last year, we're going to be looking for individuals who are helping communities and companies draw down levels of 
atmospheric carbon dioxide. So those are the four sort of areas that we're, we're looking for nominations in. And, and really what, what we're trying to do is, is recognize the people on the vanguard, right? So the, the ones that push the envelope, that take chances, that, that really put themselves out in front of everyone else and, and, and get things moving. So the vanguard list features open. The nomination form will be linked here in the, uh, the run list for our podcast. And we, we hope people su- uh, suggest as many individuals as possible. There's no limit to your imagination or how many people you can nominate. So go for it. And you'll find that on the homepage of greenbiz.com, you can find the link to Verge Vanguard Awards. Let's keep moving into the Week in Review. So let's start with Circularity 19, since that's still fresh. And since there's so much to cover that we really didn't get a chance to cover last week when we uh, recorded our show at the Marriott in downtown Minneapolis. Um, So I did a piece, I did a few things, which is I scanned uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tweets uh, that were done with the Circularity 19 hashtag. Um, it looked at some of the other coverage, uh, watched some of the pieces that I that I had missed from the main stage at least, and put together sort of my 10 takeaways about what I learned last week at Circularity 19. Um, and I think the one that got a lot of people's attention, which is the one I started off with, which is that plastic waste has now supplanted climate change as Americans' number one environmental concern. Uh, That came from Suzanne Shelton of the Shelton Group, who did this really terrific presentation on uh, the last day, uh, Thursday, and had done some research that said that uh, 65% of Americans are concerned about ocean plastic relative to 58% around climate change, so 65 to 58, uh, that's significant. Uh, and it's not surprising given all the attention that's been paid to banning straws and things like that. But it's also a little disconcerting, I guess, that climate change, which is, you know, uh, not to downplay the, the problem of plastic waste, but uh, it's not as existential as, uh, as climate change uh, may well be that that is sort of sinking in the in the ratings and the rankings, if you will. But that's the reality. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And, and since you mentioned it, I, I, I just want to point out that my little town of Midland Park is actually considering a single-use plastic bag ban. Um, the town next to us just did it, and they're, they're kicking, it's kicking on January 1st. So that just goes to show that, yeah, this is in the psyche of just the average American, right? People are hearing about this and caring about this. Um, and I agree with you. It is disconcerting, but I, I, I'm not, it's not surprising to me because people can touch this stuff, right? They touch it. They can feel it. They see it. That has become ingrained in, in individuals' um, minds. I think one of the things I get concerned with on this discussion is that, you know, plastic itself is not a bad thing, right? It's, it's yes, the way we produce it right now is bad because it, it tends, it's a petrochemical, you know, it's, it, it lives on, based on petrochemicals, but that is changing. Um, and plastic helps us save things and store things. If it's the it's the waste that's the issue. So I'm 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 a little bit worried about the sort of backlash against plastic in general because it can be designed to be used in a really good way. And I think that that's you know a little bit of a concern for me. You know how the pendulum swings so far. Um, you know, for me, I, I love, by the way, how you did this list. This is when, when individuals ask me how I cover a trade show, 
This is the sort of thing that I do often, especially when there's so much great dialogue, because you don't want to pick one thing, right? There's so much. And recounting the things that you are walking away with uh, is, is wonderful. And this really helped me to sort of synergize the event in my mind. For me, the thing, one of the other things that really jumps out is the metrics thing. Um, how do you measure how circular, circular you are? And is this product circular or is it durable? And, it, and how do these, you know, what materials and so forth. So I think that's going to be a real challenge, especially for the, the, the listeners of, of our podcast, because that's what you do. You have to make these things. And um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to how that unfolds. Yeah. I mean, one thing I just want to push back on a little bit, Heather, is that um, the connection between plastic and climate change, because it's, it's, it's fairly significant when you look at the uh, you know, amount of plastic we're using and the growth of plastic and the need for plastic to come from petrochemicals, which means a, a lot of fracking, in, uh, particularly in the United States, um, and the cracking cracker plants or cracking plants, I guess they're called, that um, chemical companies use to break up the natural gas into the components that then become uh, things like polyethylene. Um, there's a lot of climate-related damage that happens during that process. And so there is a connect there, uh, the methane from plastics, uh, is is not non-trivial, and methane being a much more potent, although shorter-lived greenhouse gas. So uh, I don't, you know, it's it's not a either or plastic or climate. They are connected, and I'm not sure a lot of people see that. But nonetheless, uh, just one or two other uh, highlights that I wanted to bring up is that, um, yeah, the metrics. That's that's a great one. There's a generational divide. Not surprising, um, but more younger consumers are sidling up to some aspects of circularity, particularly things like durability, repair, and rental uh, uh, of products instead of buying them. Millennial and Gen Z consumers are, 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 I think, are warming to that as they step into their purchasing power. Uh, And then I think the other thing that was interesting to me is some of the non-environmental benefits uh, that are inuring to companies that are uh, engaging in the circular economy. Uh, and they're significant in reducing waste and resource use, energy, water emissions, and, and the like. But you know, Target talked about uh, circularity goals, how those have helped increase employee engagement. 3M talked about how circularity has improved recruiting, innovation, and collaboration opportunities, both internally and externally with partners and customers. And um, and I, I just was struck also by the conversation I had with Andrew Morlay at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, their CEO, uh, how they don't use sustainability. They barely say the S word when they talk about circular economy. Instead, they focus on the E word economy because they said that opens up more conversations. It's about creating wealth versus extracting wealth. And, and that's the, I thought that was, interesting to a room full of mostly sustainability-minded professionals who are leaning into the circular economy, that they uh, maybe need to frame it in more business terms. Yeah, I, and I, I'm going to just add one more thing for, for myself. The, uh, the urban, the connection with the urban living is, is I think, pretty significant as well. Two, in two regards. Number one is, is, you know, one of the reasons that the millennials and then the sort of next gen people don't necessarily want to own these things is because they, frankly, they might not have as much room. They might be living in a city. They might be uh, not, might not have any storage space. So there for them, it's a, a convenience thing. They don't want to own this, 
this tent, they want to rent the tent when they want to use it and go out and camp. And then also, you know, this goes to I know, something you talk about a lot is the local nature of a, of a circular economy that, that these things cycle in a, in a region or, and that will become much more important. So we're going to hear more about cities and how they're, they're using their own, you know, waste streams and turning them into value instead of sending them elsewhere. And how do, how do they circulate uh, different resources in, in, within the city limits, if you will. So that for me is a, is another connection. Great. Well, let's move on to a different story by a longtime friend and, and collaborator, Rory Bakke, who's now a senior sustainability practitioner at Haley and Aldrich. And uh, she wrote a piece for us about addressing the material risk of climate change in your company. And this is uh, really becoming important for uh, a lot of companies, particularly publicly traded ones, because investors are, are starting to ask, what are the plans for uh, reducing climate impacts, number one, but also what are the plans for uh, thriving and surviving in some regards in a climate changing world with increased flooding or, or droughts or extreme weather or uh, agricultural belts shifting northward, perhaps. And that's an interesting time. Uh, and so she brings some, some good sort of hands-on, you know, how do you do this? How do you think about this and communicate it and create uh, a company-specific methodology? And as always, she says, you got to start with the right questions. Yeah, uh, your point about the company-specific me methodology is a great one. I really that really resonated with me. It you you can't uh, the right questions yes for your industry right. So every company is going to have a different way of looking at this based on their location, based on who they compete against, based on what their stakeholders want. So I love the idea that that a real estate and logistics management company might have a totally different framework than a tech you know, a tech company that's building data centers um, and that you have to do, you have to work with your people internally, your experts, you know, not, not your sustainability experts, but your operational experts to understand what exactly you should be looking at and reporting on. Um, so for me, that was a big point. I also love the, the link that she makes uh, with the UN sustainable development goals. So, because we, we see, and I don't know, it's one of these, these threads that needs to be pulled on a little bit more Companies have been talking about how to align their strategy with the, the SDGs. Maybe this is one of those things that's going to help make that alignment more explicit. Um, I don't know. I, you know I, I'd love to see more specific details on how companies are acting, and maybe this will push them over there. Yeah, and we're coming up on the one-third mark of the 15-year goal for the Sustainable Development Goals. They were promulgated in 2015, and they're supposed to reach, we're supposed to reach those goals by 2030. So... Uh, it, it is time to take stock. One of the other pieces of this that Rory writes about that I really liked is not just how do you talk about uh, climate impacts to uh, investors and, and customers and the like, but how do you change the culture internally? So some of the questions that she suggests asking is how do we encourage employees to report risks and potential risks? How can we work better on a constructive culture to build the awareness, literacy, and capabilities that we need to respond. Uh, how do you constructively engage new ideas uh, without fear of you know people you know having bad ideas or making a mistake? And then how do you build resilience in the company and the industry uh, and the communities where you operate? So these are big questions and hard questions, 
And I really encourage uh, checking out Rory's piece, uh, addressing the material risk of climate change in your company. So the final piece we'll plug for this week's Week in Review is a piece by Katie Fehrenbacher on Alphabet's Sidewalk Labs and their new plan in Toronto. They, they've been working with the city of Toronto to come up with an, an idea of, of how you would create sort of a master city, a smart city, right? Tech-enabled smart city, of course. Alphabet and Google and Sidewalk Labs are all about tech. And they're working with a, a, a waterfront area in Toronto in trying to test different theories in that area. It's a pretty bold move on the part of both Toronto and Sidewalk Labs because this is like a, this is not like some little this is a sandbox that is a living sandbox, right? When when companies test things, it's usually off somewhere in the side and it's not going to really affect anyone. But they're going to test a lot of different ideas. Um, the idea, like sort of from a fifty thousand foot level, is that people in this district won't need cars, period, full stop, residents and commuters. And that's the idea is to sort of create a space where no one needs to own cars themselves. So they're working on a a mix of transit systems and biking and um, self-driving vehicles. Of course, it would be electric and uh, as a way of serving this this district. Um, And one of the things that I really particularly cottoned onto in this this piece and really spoke to the geek in me was the idea that the sort of zones that you create on streets could be flexible. So right now, if you go into New York City or Oakland, California, and you're trying to park, you look at the signs, you're kind of trying to look at the sign while you're driving and looking for a parking spot, and you can't really tell exactly whether you can park there or not. Well, this this idea, the part of the plan here is that these zones will be flexible and dynamic and that that you would, you know, at one point of a day, this could be a freight loading zone. But after business hours, it might be a passenger parking zone and that these things would change and you would receive alerts and signals based on sort of traffic and also time of day and and, and other things like a special event maybe that shut down an area. So, you know, why dedicate this sidewalk and street curb to just one purpose that that for me was like one of those whoa that's kind of a a cool idea you know like have a flexible infrastructure if you will well that'll help people like me i always miss that one sign that says you can't park here between 9:47 and 10:26 on alternating thursdays and months ending and why that you you know i just i parked there and i you know 65 or 89 dollars later it's like oh god but what's cool about this project is which is taking place on a this swath of of toronto's lake ontario shoreline uh, is they want to turn this into the most innovative district in the entire world not just the world but the entire world according to a quote from dan Doctoroff, the ceo uh, and they created a 1,524-page proposal that talks about a lot of things, some environmental, some of it's uh, around mobility, as, as Katie's writing about and emphasized in her piece. But it's um, you know, also you know, just connectivity in general and why, ubiquitous Wi-Fi and uh, a lot of other smart city features. Uh, it, it's an interesting project that's, I think, going to be, you know, as you said, be a sandbox or a learning lab. And um, we'll be hearing a lot more about the Waterfront Toronto. Let's see how smart it really gets.
So we mentioned at the beginning of the program that we had captured some main stage audio from the Circularity 19 conference, and I'm going to play three in rapid fire, three more of those clips for you here. Next up is Lauren Yarmouth. She is a systems thinker trained as an architect, and she manages the circular economy program for design firm IDEO. Uh, Yarmouth spoke on the second day of the conference about the cultural implications of moving to circular modes of design and production. And one of her themes is the need for renewed connections and empathy. Here are some of her insights. We are all doing really, really important work to try to progress this new economy, and we have to do it. We have to design the products, the services, the systems. We have to design the infrastructure that will transition us to this place. But unless our cultural fabric is intact, we may have a really hard time having this shift take hold and scale in the way we desperately need it to because there's, there's nothing to hold it in place. We tend to address problems through design and strategy. At best, we get to the point of thinking of behaviors and designing for that. But with something this big and this complex and this fundamental to everything that we are and everything that we need, we may actually also need to be thinking about our beliefs, our philosophies, and our principles that underpin everything else. We may need to be thinking about those moments at the dinner table, about how we love, about what we believe in, about how we lead, because otherwise it becomes so abstract. It's hard for us to feel like what we do matters, like we have agency, like we are part of this complex system. Otherwise it feels really far away. For decades now we've, we've been building these norms around individualism these ideas that we have to do it all ourselves. It's so ingrained in most of us that it's hard to imagine anything else. But that concept of individualism is, is not only antithetical to the circular economy, but it may actually make it impossible for us to really get there. And so we have this opportunity now to redesign, to reimagine, to rebuild. Over the past year or so, I've been working with the urban planning firm Gale, some of whom are here, around how this circular economy starts to apply at the city scale. And through this, have started really thinking about the idea that at its core, circular economy is about potential. The potential of a cup, the potential of a bottle, the potential of a nutrient to stay at play as long as possible the potential of a city or an ecosystem to realize its full self, and the potential of us, of humans, of our essence, of our ability to contribute in a meaningful way to the world around us. The next clip centers on ideas for a new approach to recycling and why rethinking the process could bring new jobs and opportunities to communities that haven't traditionally benefited from this. 
The soundbite comes from a presentation given by the co-presidents of Eureka Recycling, a Minneapolis-based nonprofit dedicated to zero waste. You'll hear first from Kate Davenport, followed by Lynn Hoffman. We are all making the effort to recycle because we want that cleaner air, that drinkable water, a secure and safe future for our kids. And we know that landfills and incinerators are sited in communities of color and in low-income communities, and that waste and consumption is an environmental justice issue throughout the supply chain. People are connecting the impacts of fossil fuel extraction, like fracking, to demands for plastic production, and we are increasingly concerned about plastics in our water, our soil, our breast milk, and even our beer. So is recycling the right thing? Is recycling going to help us address all those concerns? In light of the upheaval of the last two years, is it still worth it? These are important questions. And if the metric for success is large financial profit, then some are making the calculation that no, it's not. It's not worth it. There's a dominant narrative that recycling shouldn't cost more than trash. However, if we measure our success and relate and relate that success to our actual goals for a healthy, secure future, regardless of how cheap in dollars the tip fees and operational costs of garbage are, it's far too costly to continue wasting. We are paying for waste with our air, water, health, and climate. And recycling is more important now than ever. Recycling can be a part of a much needed solution, but how we do it and how we measure success matters. So at Eureka Recycling, we are working every day to demonstrate a path forward for recycling that provides as much benefit to our community as possible and set some of those new markers. For example, we pay above living wage to all of our full-time benefited employees, which is not the norm in the industry. And this industry is the, in the top five most dangerous industries in the country. Um, you know, we work hard to choose local transparent markets so we can really follow those materials across the supply chain. And really understand what's happening to them, and we optimize our system to take care of those materials so they have a really good chance at a next life. But even if or when we see programs across the country making changes to provide these kinds of community and environmental businesses, we will not recycle our way out of this problem to get the future that we want. The empty trash can has become the symbol of what we're working towards. But the trick is that empty trash can is just one metric. It's not really the goal of circularity, because it turns out it's very possible to empty that trash can and still exploit people, pollute the air and water and soil, either here or in someone else's home, and destabilize the climate. And more importantly, a full recycling cart doesn't tell the whole story. For every one full cart of recycling, there was 71 times that amount of waste generated just to get those items into our homes, from extraction to production to transportation. So recycling might reduce some of that upstream impact for the next product we're making, but the only real way to address those 71 carts is to reduce our consumption. We're too often stopping at better consumption and not continuing to less consumption, which again is the only way we're going to get at those 71 carts. As this conference demonstrates, there's a tremendous excitement around the potential for new technology, like chemical recycling, to be key building blocks for a circular economy. This is a critically important time to ensure that these investments are really going to move us in the right direction. As we build the new economy together, let's learn from the cautionary tale of recycling diversion and the national sword. Let's bake into the bones of circularity a commitment to our real goals and measures for planet and all people. 
The final clickable feature builds on the idea that the transition to a circular economy offers a great opportunity to create a more inclusive system. How can big companies participate meaningfully? We end with some advice from Tawana Black, founder and CEO of the Center for Economic Inclusion based in North Minneapolis. She spoke as part of a conversation at the end of the conference, a session entitled Power, Privilege, and Bias in a Circular Economy. Here is Tawana's advice. An ask that I would have for you is to open your eyes. Often we miss the things and the opportunities that are right in front of us because we tend to operate in silos. We tend to, um, I think I mentioned earlier, tend to operate and think about, okay, inclusivity is over here, race is here, gender is there, circularity values are there, business bottom line is even somewhere over here, and it tends to be the one that's right in front of us. And yet there are opportunities all around us to begin to solve at the intersections of economic development, of workforce development, and advancement of solving for our local communities at the same time that we solve for the global bottom line. And those assets that you have in your communities, those nonprofit organizations, your public sector partners, can go the distance. They can understand the objectives that you're discussing here this week of the circular economy if you invite them to the table. I'm grateful to Target who reached out to me several months ago and said we're hosting a convening on the circular economy. Can you come and talk to us about um, how economic inclusion intersects? And I'll be honest, I didn't know a clue about the circular economy and I'm gratefully married to an engineer and said, hey, educate me quickly so that I can go um, do this intersection. But thankfully, in the last few months since that event, I've been able to bring my team along and educate them and it's helped us now start to bring our community partners along. And so I would encourage all of you, go the distance, look at those partners who are right in front of you, and look for the intersections that can help us all speed up the outcomes that we need, not only for our communities, but ultimately also for our economy. Attention customers, I want you to listen very carefully. On behalf of Big Oil, I want to thank you all for choosing muscle cars that use gasoline. Long live the American muscles. Recently, Arnold Schwarzenegger teamed up with Veloz to promote the benefits of electric cars. To show how they save time, money, and the environment, he went undercover as a used car salesman. Hi, how are you? Howard Kleiner. <laughs> and tried to sell people gas cars instead. <laughs> Yep, that was California's 38th governor, the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in a pretty ridiculous just-launched ad campaign for the nonprofit Veloz. Veloz was created last summer to work on building consumer awareness for electric vehicles. There have been about 1.2 million electric vehicles sold in the U.S. since 2010, and about half of those, or a little under 600,000, are driving on the roads of California. California currently has close to 50 models of zero-emission vehicles available in the state, and that number is expected to grow to several hundred over the next few years. However, right now the biggest barrier to the growth of consumer adoption is, quite simply, knowing that electric cars exist and are available. I chatted with the executive director of Veloz, Josh Boone, this week, and he had this to say about the issue. One of the trends certainly is, you know, there are still some challenges to moving this market forward. And you could talk about policy challenges, you could talk about incentives challenges, you could talk about um, upfront costs and infrastructure. 
Um, but what we um, have observed and from what our colleagues at the University of California tell us is that there's still uh, just a broad lack of awareness, um, consideration, and understanding for electric cars. I think well over 50% can't name an EV. And this um, AAA did a recent survey, maybe you saw it, that had similar findings. And the finding is that uh, one of the top barriers uh, that remains is um, education, awareness, and understanding about um, what these uh, vehicles are, what the technology includes, and at the end of the day, the reality that they're just um, a better way to drive. And that's where the Arnold Schwarzenegger campaign comes in. Veloz is trying to bend the curve on EV adoption, and they're trying to use the Terminator's star power and hilarious nature and interest in EVs as a way to do so. Josh explained to me some of the planning behind the scenes to create the video. What we're really trying to do, as you know, is we're really trying to uh, move the dial in a big way on transforming an entire uh, portion of the economy. And so in order to do that, we know that to address one of the largest barriers around um, uh, consumer education awareness, that we really need to, to, to take, uh, put together a campaign that would go bigger, higher, deeper, and wider. And so we really wanted in true California fashion um, to enlist, um, you know, a, a world-renowned Hollywood A-lister. And so we're just delighted that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, will be, you know, starring um, in Kicking Gas. And I think that the big goal was to answer the question, how do you inspire and engage Californians in a unique um, edgy, uh, kind of provocative way. I mean, certainly, um, you know, what we know is that, uh, is that boring is really out and campaigns that don't grab attention usually don't go very far. And so, um, we were just delighted that Arnold, you know, gave his time as an in-kind contribution to the effort. He's super jazzed up about the mission of Velos, and he's super excited about um, promoting uh, electric vehicles because he, um, as you know, as governor, um, uh, did AB32 and is a big believer that you can drive the car that you love and have the clean air that you need. Um, and so we put together Kicking Gas, which is, you know, a frustrated car dealer manager, and he essentially sells the benefits of electric cars by contrasting them with the disadvantages of your traditional gasoline-powered vehicle. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be declaring our independence next week, taking a podcasting holiday, but we'll be back per usual on July 12th. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.